1: We all know that the Civil War gave doctors the opportunity to treat hundreds of thousands of cases of disease and wounds, producing the unintended yet beneficial side effect of dramatic advances in medical knowledge. A parallel but much less familiar story is how the institution of slavery created opportunities and incentives for doctors to impose new forms of treatment on the reproductive systems of enslaved women, and in the process, develop a new medical specialty. We'll learn about this tonight from Professor Deirdre Cooper-Owens, author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, when she joins us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited! Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from our usual spot at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Uh, not speaking for the university, not speaking for anyone else, nor will my guest represent or speak for anyone but herself, as we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio. It is the last Wednesday of the month of November 2018. If you're downloading this at some future date and wondering about the environmental conditions under which the show is being produced, it's cold by North Carolina standards. It's around 30 outside Um unseasonably cold for the, the the natives, but it'll go back up to 70 and cause all of us northern transplants to gnash our teeth at the unseasonable warmth of November by the weekend. Uh, it's the merciful end of football season. Nothing will be said about uh, last week's events. Uh, my teams, uh, both Michigan and East Carolina, suffered grievously uh I understand basketball season is underway, and Michigan's in the top 10 there, so we'll just focus on that going forward, uh, and keep our eye on the ball here at East Carolina as the semester uh, comes to an end. Tomorrow is the last class meeting day for the Civil War course this semester, and as I do each uh, time I teach the course, I ask the students to bring a piece of the war with them. Uh, other than an actual weapon from the war, which campus police would frown upon. Uh, but a picture, if they have a musket over the fireplace at home, bring a, bring a photograph or send me a photograph. I'll put it up on the screen. Uh, or if you have a family story or a personal experience uh, learning about the war. And year after year, everybody has one. Uh, sometimes students will get all nervous and, and they're, they're sure they don't have one and they'll They'll worry too much about it. I find over the last ten years, students have gotten more conscientious and less uh, less confident uh, year by year. They do their work better and more thoroughly. But give them an open-ended assignment with initiative, and they 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 seize right up. Uh, in some cases, not all, of course. So it will be interesting to see what they bring as their examples of the peace of the war. I've already got some students who have submitted photographs of uh, ancestors who were actually in the Civil War. And I'm sure others will have such stories. Uh, If I hear anything particularly good, I'll let you know next week. Uh, Favorite ones in the past are people like the uh, student whose ancestor killed Stonewall Jackson. That was the family story. He was a North Carolina infantry soldier who was sure he fired the fatal shot. Uh, once had a U.S. Army Cavalry Captain from a ceremonial unit who told us all about how horses actually operate in groups when you when you ride them in a unit. So there's always something interesting, and I'll, I'll let you know next week what we hear. You can find out who's going to be on next week, of course, by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date. You will see there that next week's guest will be Christopher A. Teeters, author of Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater during the Civil War. And then on December 12th, our last show before the winter break, uh, Peter Carmichael from Gettysburg College has a brand new book out with UNC Press, The War for the Common Soldier. Been looking forward to this for some time. Very excited to read it and talk with him about it. So that'll be on the 12th of December. When we come back in January, our first show will be uh, with A. Wilson Green. Will Green used to direct Pamplin Park, now uh, retired which get some time to write giant books like A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, uh, and then one more tease for the... January season on the 16th, a rare venture into historical fiction. I frequently get authors of historical fiction or more u- usually their publicists writing to me and saying, this novel will reveal the Civil War as, as it has never been revealed before the author read you know, four books about the war and has done thorough research and, and you really have to have them on. And I gently explain, there's enough nonfiction that, that we just don't go there. Uh, with rare exceptions, but we're going to make a rare exception on the the 16th. uh, Alex Rossino has written a novel about the Antietam campaign called six days in September. And just from a cursory glance, it looks above the, the run of the usual civil war historical novel and, uh, And uh, Dr. Rossino has an interesting background himself as well. So we will talk with him about that on January 16th. Tonight we talk about uh, a different subject altogether. If you were listening two weeks ago, you may recall that our uh, hosts at Voice America were kind enough to move the show that precedes this one to a different time slot Uh, That show was called, I think, The Sexy Lifestyle, something to that effect about people who engage in swinging and other non-traditional sexual behaviors and then feel the need to tell everyone else about it. Uh, I have no objection to people doing what they want to do, nor even talking about sex, certainly, but uh, not to me and not in that fashion. I was not interested in the details they were sharing, and I don't think uh, some of the guests waiting on hold for the show to begin were kind of put off by that. Tonight we do talk about sex, but in a historical sense. We look at the history of medicine specific to women, or gynecology, in the years before the Civil War, and our guest for doing that is Professor Deirdre Cooper Owens. She's the Associate Professor of History at Queens College, City University of New York, and the author of *Medical Bondage*, *Race, Gender*, and the Origins of American Gynecology, uh, Dr. Cooper Owens, are you there? I am. I'm glad to uh, be here. Welcome to the show. Uh, with uh, with two last names, and I have a very long one. Can can <laughs> I? And we did get to meet actually at Gettysburg. Can we be informal we did. Uh, and go by first yes, names of tonight? Yes, yeah, Deirdre is fine. Thank you. Thank, thank you. And Jerry is, is what I go by. Well, Deirdre, let me start then by stressing our uh, mutual friend, uh, Kinetta Perry, uh, who you, yes. you and I talked about briefly when we met at Gettysburg. Yes. Uh, yes. She was a, a colleague here at East Carolina who has just left for a position at DeMontfort University in Leicester, uh, UK, right. where she will direct the Stephen Lawrence Research Center. Uh, what what an honor for her. I'm so pleased and proud of her, but really disappointed to be losing her. You've known her for a long time. I
4: have. And in fact I mentioned that I would be on your
1: show and so she wanted me to send you her regards as oh, earlier nice. this week. Well I'm delighted to hear that. I was had the the privilege of being department chair at the time she came to us, so I got to make the final uh call within the department among the candidates and uh, hiring her was the single best decision I made as department oh, chair without great. without a question. Great. Uh, well, let me ask you about your background and interest in this particular topic. What what brings you to the study of this branch of medicine, this era, uh, this, mm-hmm. this body of, of history? So it's
4: it's interesting. I knew when I started um, my studies at UCLA, I was interested in the 19th century, primarily the antebellum era, um, mm-hmm. but also interested in enslaved women. I, and I wasn't sure, actually, what I wanted to do. I was one of those students who, who kind of took a long time and took a, a bunch of detours, and I remember reading a book called Gender Talk, written by Janetta Cole, who is then the president of my undergraduate institution, Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina, and mm-hmm. Beverly Guy Scheftel. And I, I literally read two to three sentences that spoke about James Marion Sims and his experimental surgical work on enslaved women in Alabama. And I thought, this is weird. Why didn't I know this? Thing. I had gone to Bennett, an all-women's college, all-black women's college. Yes. All black women's college. Uh, and then I had a master's degree in African-American studies from Clark Atlanta University. My mother had a, a, BA, a BS, excuse me, a professional biology. So I called her, and I said, Mother, do you, had you ever heard of this guy, you know, an, an experimental work on enslaved people? And she had not the only um, kind of medical experimentation at that time, and this was about 15 years ago, was Tuskegee. Everybody knew about Tuskegee. And mm-hmm. then, of course, uh, you know, some, some decades later, we found out about Henrietta, Henrietta Lacks. But I thought mm-hmm. this would be a wonderful dissertation project. And so I literally fell into the history of medicine, and it was one of the best decisions that, that I've made because it really has informed the way that we can look at the 19th century. Um, and, and also, for me, think about the South uh, in a very different way about all of these advancements that were going on in the field of gynecology and how it really put the United States on the global map in terms of uh, medicine.
1: Now, when I first mentioned uh, to my wife, she said, what, what's this week's book about on the show? And I uh, mm-hmm. told her that, uh, and, and the way I phrased it, she made a face and said, oh, like, like Dr. Mengele, like, this is going to be horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and what would you tell a reader who thinks this is all going to be all about horrifying medical experiments, which right. are not absent, yeah. but that's not what it's all about? Mm-hmm.
4: Right. No, it's, you know, thankfully, it's not, it's not a kind of narrative tour of the grotesque. I mean, you know, obviously mm-hmm. there are some, some moments that are pretty graphic when you're explaining people who are ill you know, and who are undergoing medical crisis. But I think what will be surprising is the ways that I've attempted to um, really fully flesh out the historical actors. And so what I try to do uh, is show them as complicated human beings. So there's often been a narrative um, where you have slave-owning physicians who are seen as kind of monstrous brutes who are intent on, um, mangling and butchering the body parts of, of enslaved people. And what I have to show is, A, you know, there were, n- there were not many exceptional people during this time. What people were doing was uh, working with a cultural uh, heritage that had really been passed on to them with regard to race and sex and status. But beyond that, what I'd like for them to see is the history of medicine uh, narrative that includes the stories and the lives of the patient. And so in the South, obviously, I'm focusing on enslaved women, but there is a chapter in the book where I also talk about poor Irish immigrant women uh, in the, late, uh, the latter part of the antebellum era and during the Civil War era um, who are also some of the first patients undergoing these these gynecological experiments. And so people have really been, I think, pleased with the ways that I've shown the humanity of all of the historical uh, actors, particularly the women who are so prominent in my book. Um, but also, they've learned a lot about uh, an aspect of U.S. history that often doesn't get the attention it needs, uh, which is medicine. Um, And which is women's medicine, and so I think for them it resonates in a particular way because we've all had medical experiences, right? We've all been born, and so if you start from that point of origin with the readers, then they can see themselves in these stories quite often.
1: I, I think it, you do accomplish those things in terms of giving you mm-hmm. know, some some humanity and, and uh, giving the reader understanding of the people you're writing about. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. that by the, by the time the Civil War comes around, the immediate aftermath of the war, American doctors are in the forefront of technical progress in gyne- gynecology around the world. Mm-hmm. And what, mm-hmm. what we're going to do now is take a short break, but when we come back, I want to ask you, uh, to take us back to how they got there. What was medicine for women like in 1700 as opposed to 1850? Uh, and then we can talk about the, the, the progress through there. But we'll take a short break first. Our guest tonight, uh, Professor Deirdre Cooper Owens, author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>
3: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain
0: firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion
2: counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh?
0: He set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. Creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, book 18. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Professor Deirdre Cooper-Owens, author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. We ended our first segment talking about the fact that uh, by the end of the Civil War era, American doctors led the world in the technology of gynecological practice, but if we go back 100, 150 years, uh, America was far from the leader. What, what was women's medicine like, uh, Deirdre, at, at the beginning of, of the, mm-hmm. the process that you described? Right.
4: I, you know, during the colonial era, the new national era in um, in this country's history, it was pretty static. I mean, the ways that people healed 200 years before um, was very similar to the ways that American doctors have been primarily healing others, and it was very uh, segregated by sex. And so women's health problems tended to be um, managed and controlled by other women. So midwifery, for instance, was a, a female domain. And it really wasn't until the late 18th century and early 19th century that you started uh, to have men integrate themselves. I mean, in very small numbers, into midwifery originally or obstetrics, and later with the advent of gynecology as a, a, a field of um, a, a field of study in medicine in uh, the country's early history, you started to have an integration also of science. And so medicine becomes very scientific. It becomes, you know, medicalized science, as as scholars call it. And what happens, doctors are now using a lot of the ideas around racial science in their thinking, in their writing. Um, and it informs the way that they, they treat patients, that they write about patients. But what begins to happen is the experimental phase. And so doctors are writing, some pro- prolifically, uh, in medical journals about the kinds of experimental trials that they're using to, to fix, and this is a, a kind of 19th century word, but to fix these women's conditions. Um, and so gynecology really emerges. Um, not you know, it, it doesn't emerge uh in a vacuum. It had been practiced in in Europe. Uh mm-hmm. it had been taught in some of the world's most uh well respected medical schools like those in Edinburgh and Paris and London. But what becomes really important in America is a at the start of the century, Ephraim McDowell, who was Virginia born, later moved to Kentucky. Has the, he, he performs the first abdominal-based surgery, and the yes. patient lives. And essentially, he removes a diseased ovary. And he begins an experimental trial, and most of the patients live. The rest of the patients outside of first were all uh, women of color, either enslaved, I think one or two were free. And after that, you start to have experiments on uh, enslaved women for pregnancy, for uh, obstetrical conditions um, where there is incontinence because of holes that expose the bladder due to complicated and long deliveries. And doctors begin to do this work with uh, far more success because they have access to a patient population which are enslaved people, that allows them really the opportunity to work on these women for a longer time. And also, they're not going to face opposition because they've already entered into contractual agreements with enslaved women's owners. And so you really are just ensuring the owner that you can, in very clinical terms and in the language of the day, make sure that their property is not damaged but, in fact, repaired. But of course, for us, you know, the crux of this uh, of this is the property, right, are actually subjects, they're human beings. And so because of the large number of enslaved people and enslaved women in particular who are suffering from reproductive ailments, you know, it's a ripe environment for gynecology to really flourish. And so you're right, by the end of the Civil War, America is leading uh, the world in terms of the gynecological developments that have come about. Uh, due to Ephraim McDowell's pioneering work in 1808, to, I'm sorry, 1809, all the way to James Marion Sims, who's probably the most famous of that century's gynecologists. But people are doing all kinds of work, and largely, it's it's being conducted on enslaved people.
1: And, and that, of course, makes the United States unique among Western nations mm-hmm. that has this large enslaved population. And you argue right. this is not therefore it's not a coincidence uh, mm-hmm. that that you mm-hmm. as you say you've got these these female bodies that are subject to their so-called owners' control, mm-hmm. so they they mm-hmm. don't have a choice to submit to these procedures. But you also talk considerably about the the economic motive of of the mm-hmm. owners, the importance of childbearing for female slaves oh, uh, yeah. from an economic standpoint. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is really important because the engine of slavery is really resting in the wombs of enslaved women. And so when we think about uh, the beginning of British colonial America and the laws that distinguish servants from slaves, when you're originally talking about the indentured and and those who are enslaved, um, one of the first distinctions that becomes law particularly in the colony of Virginia, and it kind of spreads throughout the other colonies, is the condition of the child, right? And this is to an enslaved woman. The condition of the child is inherited through the mother. And this is a total reversal of English law regarding paternity. And so typically, the child would inherit the status of the father, but it's very different for enslaved people, and so what you want to ensure is that the reproductive capabilities of any enslaved woman of childbearing age is optimal. And so people are very invested in, particularly after the uh, banning of the African slave trade in the United States, people are very interested in increasing the, the birth rate, the natural birth rate of of black people who are primarily enslaved in the country, and so the way that you do this is to ensure that these women are reproductively healthy, and so gynecology really comes about um, after that moment. You know, it, I do think this is this is coincidental, right? That uh, Ephraim McDowell first performs his uh, abdominal-based surgery to remove a dis- diseased ovary uh, from Mary Jane Todd Crawford in 1809. But that's literally one year after the ban of African, um, you know, kind of middle passage-based slavery is made illegal by the Constitution, right? So that's 1807, yes. 1808 is the first year, and then a year after that, here you have McDowell's groundbreaking surgery. But what this also does is it really um, legitimates, uh, in a very real sense, the South, in more than um, agricultural terms, right? So we know that the South is an agricultural leader. Um, By the start of the Civil War, you have these deep Southern states that have really raised the economic profile and the wealth of the nation. But people often don't tie that to the growth in medical science. You have enslaved people who are living longer, you have doctors who have exper- uh, experimented and, in their words, perfected gynecological surgery and research so that these women's bodies are being healed, um, so that their children are living longer, um, because we know that the infant mortality rate is, is, is high during that time. And so, you know, what I'm trying to insert into the conversation is the way that the South becomes more advanced technologically, not just tied to agricultural science, but also tied to medical science because of um, the ways that these Southern doctors had access to black women's bodies who were owned.
1: Now, one thing I found, a question that that kept coming up as I was reading this was Uh, you know you emphasize very clearly the the economic value of these children, especially after the mm-hmm. banning of the importation of of new enslaved people mm-hmm. the if you 're an owner, mm-hmm. you grow your population at home but mm-hmm. at the same time uh owners regularly treated their pregnant slaves with mm-hmm. uh, it appeared little concern for their health, you know kept them working mm-hmm. in the fields till the day of delivery, practically. That mm-hmm. seems to contradict the idea that they would want to be especially careful to to bring a new expensive baby mm-hmm. into the world
4: yeah well so it it depends, you know, so there are moments mm-hmm. where I show you know there was a owner, a Mr. LaCrue, in Georgetown County in South Carolina whose overseer would write him and say. You know, um, through his careful observation, he felt it best that the pregnant women, you know, the pregnant enslaved slave women work until delivery. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, in plantation slave journals, you would find, by and large, uh, overseers, owners, uh, talking about ways that the lying-in period should last for three to four weeks. Um, and should there be a lying in period after the woman gives birth? And so, although there are these contradictory moments, um, mm-hmm. for me, I think it's good to to capture the ways people are trying to think about what is best, right, for for the slave, for the plantation or the slave farm, um, for themselves and their their profits. Um, And so people are really trying to work this out, and I think the, the beauty for me in studying the 19th century, and particularly gynecology during this time, is that it's a process, and so there are going to be contradictory moments. Um, There are going to be ways that as the century continues to develop, people start to write about the commonalities that are happening with slavery and gynecology. But in those early snapshots of 19th century life, you see on a very individual or micro level how overseers, how enslaved people, how uh, slave owners are really thinking about uh, and acting out the ways that they believe right uh, will benefit black women the most in terms of their their reproductive health.
1: No. In looking at that you you cite example there of you know, journals kept on plantations or letters and mm-hmm. uh, I certainly agree mm-hmm. one of the great things I find about studying the 19th century is the ability to read people's letters and diaries mm-hmm. and to know that we're not missing any right. phone calls or emails uh, this is what this is all they mm-hmm. had to say uh, right. however, uh, you're mm-hmm. writing about a population that doesn't right. have the same historical voice Mm -hmm. uh, that that doesn't Mm -hmm. have access to writing in many cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, What kind of sources did you use to try to to bring back those voices?
4: Yeah, So it's it's interesting, and that's a wonderful question. Um, When I'm giving talks to audiences, I'm really aware of that, that I want them to know Almost, you know, not quite, because sometimes I use memoirs, I'll often use the Works Progress Administration uh, oral Mm -hmm. history that was done during the uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, presidency when he commissioned that... um, Oral historians or government workers go out to collect the stories of the formerly enslaved. So I use a number of those ex-slave narratives and and interviews. But what i like to make clear, particularly when I'm presenting this in in public-facing ways, is it is a challenge when you're writing the history of slavery and about enslaved people because you're right. Here you have uh, a majority population who is illiterate. And in fact, the one thing they didn't want was a, a really intimate gaze into the interior um, parts of their lives, right? They they did not mm-hmm. want people peering into this because they were always under observation as, um, you know, forced laborers. And so I make it very clear that I am using the words of the men, and it's primarily men, um, the men who own them. And also the men who who worked on them, who treated them, who experimented on them, um, who practiced medicine on them, and so in in many ways, the history of slavery is speculative in nature, and so what we have to do is use a lot of context. What I have to do is read between the lines, so for instance, uh, you know i offer I always offer this example because I think it's a good teachable one you will often have um, doctors who embraced the racial ideology or system of beliefs that talked about um, black people or black women not experiencing pain um, during a medical crisis. So whether that's giving birth or, or some other uh, medical um, crisis or emergency that they face. And yet in these medical journal articles, they might say, you know, this, this Negress will bear cutting, with uh you know the same as a, a rabbit or a dog and literally the next sentence will say but she lost sense of herself and the assistants had to hold her down as she struggled and that's the moment for me where although the voice of the slave is never present explicitly in that writing but by the sentence and yet she lost sense of herself she struggled Right. She had to be held down by assistance. Let us, you know, let us know that, in fact, this person did feel pain. Right. This person did feel um, the, you know, the, 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 the cutting of a knife or the coldness of an instrument on their bodies, um, The, you know, the tugging out of a, a, a body part. And so it goes against. Right. When we talk about these contradictory moments, it goes against the reigning racial science about Black people's inability to feel pain right there in the writings of the medical doctor. And perhaps he was not aware of this contradiction, this kind of racial cognitive dissonance that I call it. But for me, it allows me to really
1: read the source in um, a more nuanced way. The the cognitive dissonance is, is something that, that mm-hmm. appears again and again in this book. Right. And... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Again, we're coming to a break, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a question we can think about for a minute and then come back and talk about. Um, again and again, you show how doctors performing procedures on enslaved women uh, are eventually able to extrapolate and, and use this knowledge uh, for treatment, uh, as you described in one chapter, on Irish immigrant women. Uh, and eventually, these become standardized treatments used on on any female patients. So, the doctors know scientifically that uh, women are not different biologically because mm-hmm. of the social construct of race. It's, it's not uh, mm-hmm. the same operation works on a, a black or a white or brown or mm-hmm. any other colored mm-hmm. uh, patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, they, they know right. this by their, their experience, and yet uh, their, their articles, their journal articles, their uh, language continues to deny it so we'll we'll leave with that that paradox and come back and ask you uh, how how did they work that out uh and we'll do that when we come back in just a moment talking today with deirdre cooper owens author of medical bondage race gender and the origins of american gynecology i'm jerry prokopovich and this is civil war talk radio <music>
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Professor Deirdre Cooper Owens, author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. We've been talking about how the... uh, The the very institution of slavery provided a population of women whose owners had a financial incentive for them to be healthy reproducers uh, and how there were doctors willing to experiment with new technologies and the result is American gynecology moves forward rapidly. But at the cost and uh, literally uh, at the expense of this population. And, to dear, dear, the question I ended the last segment with, uh, the doctors doing these operations understand that uh, race is not a biological thing. You can't uh, look at a person's skeleton, for example, and tell what race so-called they are. Uh, and yet they right. continue to, to participate in the, the racial pseudoscience of their day. Well, how, how do they resolve that? Right. You know, and this, well, this
4: is interesting. You know, I often, um, today we would call it pseudoscience, but then, you know, (laughs) these were, were some of the leading thinkers, um, of, of their time. And so they were really, um, I think, curious about knowing more about the body and they were very interested in biological sameness and difference. And this is the, you know, this is the moment where everyone asked this question, you know, how in the world could they hold such anti-black sentiment against these, these people that they're using, you know, in these experiments and in these treatments to ultimately cure white women. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and, and, and white women, you know, kind of stand in for, for women universally during this time. And that's a moment that really belies uh, a, a neat answer. You know, when I when I mm-hmm. spoke about earlier, the moment of racial cognitive dissonance, that's always occurring. Right. These men, as you stated, um, you know, so so factually before, they know they can't tell. Right. When it really mm-hmm. really comes down to it, most of them know they can't tell the skeleton of a black person or an Indian person or a white person. Now, some may claim they can. And yet there are so many instances where they've been fooled, they've been wronged.
1: Mm-hmm. So
4: here you have these men who understand that a black woman's cervix is the same as a white woman's cervix, you know, is the same as a, a native or Indian woman's cervix. Um And so they still forge ahead because they ultimately know this. I mean, some of them have engaged in intimate relationships with their enslaved women, so they know Mm -hmm. in a very intimate way as well that these bodies are the same. And, you know, but this is the kind of pull and the importance of um, cultural beliefs and indifference and superiority that despite the physical evidence that states, right, these people are the same anatomically, it would be essentially a high crime, you know, uh, to, to say, in fact, that black and white people are the same. And so what you do is you talk about these differences. Oh, yes, they don't experience pain. Oh, yes, you know, these are pathological bodies. But what we can do is try to fix them in particular ways so that white women can ultimately be fixed and not um, and not be pathological. Right, it doesn't make any sense at all it, um, because they continue. It, it, I mean, not it, at no, all. No, it really uh, doesn't. Right? It, it it doesn't make uh, any sense at all. Um, but yet, you know, in the medical journal articles, they will write about these differences, and and never ever once address that they're using black bodies to cure white bodies, which means, you know, ultimately that the black and white bodies are experiencing the same kinds of diseases and infections and body parts, and that's Mm. never, ever addressed.
1: You use the term superbodies throughout the book, Mm -hmm. uh, referring to to black women and how they are perceived by these white doctors. Uh, Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that? Uh, What what do you mean by that term in this historical context?
4: Sure. You know, it's it's a term, and I, I spoke about this in the book, that some people love, Other people don't love as much. Um, But Mm -hmm. for me, it was to think about the ways that um, Black women's bodies with obstetrics and gynecology were thought to be stronger, were thought to be more masculine, were thought to withstand pain or not feel it at all. Um, They were thought to be sturdier and and hardier. And at the same time, they were still written about as if they were not as developed, uh, as if they were, um, weaker in terms of the kind of aim of physical perfection, um, weaker in terms of the appearance of a womanly body. And so black women literally, uh, during that time, they, they existed on this kind of sliding scale of, normalcy sometimes, pathology most times, abnormality many times. And so the medical superbody was a phrase that I came up with that really, for me, highlights the ways that Black women uh, lived as kind of fraught denominators of medical science in the 19th century, that um, they could withstand, at least in writing and at least in practice, and we know this isn't true, but they could withstand almost anything according to these doctors. Now, the real truth is when you read the doctor's uh, journal articles, which are, I think, such important sources from that time period, mm-hmm. you start to see the ways that, in fact, these black superbodies bodies that, that were thought to be stronger, uh, more masculine, you actually see where they're frail. You know, uh, the doctors are write about um, a black enslaved patient experiencing a difficult birth. And dying, you know, uh, very soon thereafter, which shows you her vulnerability, which shows you her frailty. Um, there is a particular, um, case narrative that I use where an enslaved members of an enslaved community, uh, they go to the white physician who's treating this enslaved woman and they tell him she's weak, you know, in fact, they use the word she's fragile because she bred too many children you know, at least according to his his writing. And so mm-hmm. for them to insert themselves in this moment with a powerful white man um, who was treating an enslaved person and advocate on her behalf that, in fact, because she bore so many kids, she was a, a weakened woman because of that, I think is really important because even though The doctor may not have written about her in that way. By his inclusion, and it it might not have been intentional at all. You know, he was probably just recording the, the medical history of this woman. But by that inclusion of these enslaved people's feelings and thoughts, you knew that within the black community, there tended to be more nuance about the ways that black people's bodies and black women's bodies experienced medical trauma.
1: Last week, uh, uh, two weeks ago, last time I did the show live, uh, an author was writing about uh, the campaign in Central Virginia, 1863-64, and we talked. Uh, he talked about his experience as a, a reenactor, benefiting mm-hmm. him as a historian. That having marched in a line with, you know, 500 other men, gave him insight into what that was like. He he didn't face bullets. He didn't uh, risk dysentery. Mm-hmm. But he said he gained some knowledge from this. Um, mm-hmm. You talk in your afterward about personal experience and the historian, um, and and you say there are people who criticize uh, historians, particularly when someone tries to argue that their experience as a person of color or a woman gives mm-hmm. them insight into historical actors uh, of, mm-hmm. of the same identity. Do you you would argue that there is some validity to that insight? Is that correct?
4: Yeah. Yeah, I I totally think so. You know, I've I have I think the more I've gained confidence as a historian, the longer I've been doing this, um, mm-hmm. I tend to push against the idea that um, personal experiences somehow muddy your objectivity. It was my personal experience of being uh, a black woman growing up in a very small southern town in South Carolina that allowed me to read the historical records differently, you know, when it came to to uh finding out and discovering that a mulatto child had been born during the James Mary and Sims experimentation on enslaved women in the eighteen forties. Um I I simply looked for racial descriptions in the census because I remember growing up in King Street, South Carolina, that typically the black light skinned families were biologically related to the white families who were pretty elite in my community. And so I thought, well, hmm, you know, if this happened in the 20th century in the 21st century, um, I surely, you know, there, there might have been some um, interracial sex that, that happened on this plantation because that wasn't Mm -hmm. outside the bounds of normalcy for enslaved women to be forced into relationships um, with white men. And, guess what happened? Um, you know, I found that there was a mulatto child that was born during the experimentation. And, you know, I often share with my students and with audiences, it was my own experience growing up in a Southern space um, that allowed me to look at the record differently. So I could look at the census um, in ways that moved beyond James Marion Sims' uh, Sims's economic standing in the community. Um, another way that... For me, um, I was also confronting what objectivity meant was the afterword, right, including a kind of autobiographical moment where I detailed my own issues with um, infertility, and as I'm finishing the book, you know, it was not planned at all, I found Mm -hmm. out that my husband and I um, were having a lot of challenges around fertility and undergoing um, some some diagnostic testing and and and, and examinations that were really quite painful, and I was never given pain relieving medication. Um, you know, and I have to say, you know, it was um, a moment where I just thought, my goodness, you know, here I am living in the twenty first century as a free person. You know, as a as a mm-hmm. um, a woman who. Uh, You know, I think these enslaved women that I write about probably couldn't imagine someone like me existing in their world. And yet, in many ways, I found a kind of resonance of their 19th century experience in my own 21st century experience around the issues of reproduction, uh, the management of pain, and people's um, maybe unchecked ideas around what black bodies could still withstand in the 21st century.
1: I think it's a, an important insight, and uh, I enjoyed, let's uh, uh, you know, say, profited from reading that and understanding uh, the the argument for, you know, personal experience. Mm-hmm. And we do, as I said, we, people who reenact uh, battle scenes uh, make that argument all the time. Right. So it's a uh, it's one to consider. We have just a, a minute or two left. Let me ask sort of the overarching question. Uh, you say, uh, I'll quote, a the common theme runs throughout uh, the book, the importance of enslaved women to the development of American gynecology. That's the end of the quote. Mm-hmm. So you've got a, a book where doctors save the lives of enslaved women because of the profit motive of the owners, not out of benevolence. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You have doctors who can recognize when uh, enslaved women have been sexually assaulted whereas the law does not even recognize that as a possibility, doctors can see mm-hmm. it. Uh, you've got observations they make to provide data that directly contradicts their race-based theories of biology. Uh, you point out that because they lack respect for black women's bodies, uh, they can also treat them unhampered by Victorian mores that would make Mm make difficult to treat a a white middle class woman of the same era. Mm -hmm. And the result is Mm -hmm. huge advances in medical technology that lead to cures for all women. Mm -hmm. Is there a huge irony here that all these bad things produce this ultimately beneficial result?
4: Yeah, I mean this is, you know, this is I think what slavery meant and continues to mean, you know, in this country that you could have so many developments that happen around and because of the institution of slavery. So, whether we're talking about certain developments with agricultural science or medical science, um, you know, gynecology, dentistry, I mean, all kinds of things. And it happens because of this, you know, I think many people would agree this blot on our country's history. And yet, mm-hmm. ultimately, because of the sacrifices of these um, unpaid laborers, these enslaved people, our lives were made ultimately better, you know, um, generations after. And so, for me, I think it's important to not just center the stories of kind of the, the great men uh, and great women of the past, But to really show um, in a sensitive way, but also in a truthful way, that these folks whose names uh, have been lost to the historical record were also making sacrifices. Um, They might have been forced sacrifices, unintentional sacrifices, but had it not been for the presence of their lives due to, you know, this, this horrible institution of slavery... Um, I would not have been able to go to a fertility treatment specialist and talk about artificial insemination, for instance, as a choice that my husband and I could make during that journey. And that happened literally because of the work of these Marion Sims, you know, first thinking about reproduction on enslaved women's bodies. And so I always want to amplify, but also privilege the role of uh,
1: enslaved people in this country's history. Well, it, it's uh, an, an eye-opening book, uh, one that is definitely worth reading. Uh, listeners, you will uh, benefit, I'm sure, as I did from reading Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. It's uh, it, it's the kind of, uh, of this cutting-edge history that uh, we maybe don't talk enough about uh, and it's definitely, definitely worth your time. Uh, Deirdre, it was a pleasure talking with you tonight. We, there are so many other things in the book. We didn't even touch on the Irish immigrant women. Yeah. Uh, there's so yeah. much more we could talk about. <laughs> uh, but alas, our, our time is up. Uh, we'll have to do it another time. Thank you so much for being right. on the show tonight. All
4: right. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed myself.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.